Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Progress Podcast. If you've listened to our trailer, then you've heard a bit about what's to come in this podcast series. This is the first of a series of podcast episodes about results from the research project, Progress. Likely, if you're here, you've heard of the project or maybe even participated by taking our survey. If so, thanks so much for taking the time to do that. Just in case you haven't heard of Progress, or if you're interested to know more about the project, this episode will tell you everything you need to know. Even if you did take our survey, stay tuned to learn some stuff about community-based research, patient-oriented research, why this project got started and why it's important, our team, and what topics we asked about and why. As always, there's lots to check out on our website, progresscolab with only one L.net, progresscolab.net. And you can follow us on social media for more community-focused content at Progress Collab. Again, only one L, Progress Collab. I'm Leo Rutherford, and I'll be the host for each episode of this podcast. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Victoria, located on the lands of the Songhees, Esquimalt, Musanich peoples. I'm the lead researcher for Progress, and part of its results are forming my dissertation, which should be finished this summer. After my PhD, I plan to just keep working on more community-led research about gender-affirming surgeries and transition-related healthcare. This episode is part introduction to our study, our methods, our research team, and the survey, and a follow Meta 101 along with some frequently asked questions. In the later portion of the episode, I'll be joined by Logan Berrien, and he will answer some frequently asked questions that we hear and give you an overview about phalloplasty and metoidioplasty. The very next episode after this one will be perfect for anyone who's interested in research, but I promise there'll be something for everyone to learn. The rest of the series will dive into our results. So progress is the shortest title of our study about experiences and outcomes of phalloplasty and metoidioplasty. It is an acronym and it stands for Patient Reported Outcomes of Genital Reconstruction and Experiences of Surgical Satisfaction. You can call it PROGRESS. You can also call it PROGRESS for Phalloplasty and Metoidioplasty. We were able to get funding for this project through a national strategy for patient-oriented research, which was developed with the understanding that research about patients should involve patients. Really, the idea is that people with lived experience have valuable knowledge that should be considered when developing research plans and data collection tools. This project utilizes both a patient-oriented approach and is a community-based participatory project, or CBPR project. CBPR is a unique approach to research that disrupts traditional ideas of the researcher as expert and community members as only participants. Instead, this type of research sees community members' lived experience and knowledge as expertise. Because community members have expertise that researchers may not, they should be included in research to ensure this knowledge is considered when planning research projects. Community-based research projects also focus on developing equity in researcher-community relationships. For a long time, many communities were over-researched and nothing was given back to them. In CBPR, researchers focus output on content that is useful for the community rather than just creating knowledge for academia. Since trans people are often left out of research about our health, it was important for this project 
to focus on the lived experience of community members. For this reason, I brought together a group of seven individuals and myself to form a Community Engagement Committee, or CEC. These folks, along with myself, all have lived experience of one or more of these surgeries. Like many CBPR projects, the focus of this committee is to drive the research process by ensuring community voices are centered in research design and knowledge translation plans. We want to make sure that our results get back to the community in ways that are most useful, because this research is really needed by our community. So this podcast is one way that we're sharing info about our research and our results back to our participants and to the broader community. In addition, we'll have data visualizations, including infographics coming out on our website, and a report where you'll be able to read everything we found in common language. I want to tell you a bit more about the community members who were involved in this project. I'm the lead researcher, and I did a bunch of work on a lot of aspects of this project, but there is a whole team, these seven people I mentioned, who were also behind the success of this work. Even though I'm the one talking, I don't want to give the false sense that I have done or could have done this alone. I could not have. You can read more about the other folks involved on our website, but I did just want to take some time to acknowledge them here and share a little bit about their bios. Noah is a researcher, advocate, and student at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies and Education, where he's completing a PhD in adult education and community development. Lyndon's long-term goal is to become a family doctor or urologist with a focus on trans care. Gaines undertakes research on gender-affirming surgery informed by his experience and expertise as a peer advocate. Logan serves the trans community via work with the San Francisco Department of Public Health as a member of the Cultural Humility and Provider Training Team and has lectured in various academic settings, teaches nurse trainees about working with trans, non-binary, and gender-conforming populations. Lucas currently works for Transcare BC and is pursuing an MPH with a focus on improving gender-affirming healthcare systems and health literacy. This project has felt really important to me and everyone involved has really given their all to make sure it was done well and addresses important aspects of fallow and meta experiences. If you're a trans community member, you probably aren't asking why this research is important or needed. If you know anything about the research that has been conducted about fallow and meta, you'll already know this, but almost all of the research has been conducted by surgeons with surgeon audiences in mind. Very rarely, well, never until recently, were trans community members with experience of these surgeries involved in the research process. This was the first research project led by a group of trans people. Only one cis person was involved in the making of this project, one of my research supervisors, who I've found to be a great ally. So why does it matter, or what difference does it make to have this research led by trans people? If you aren't connected to the community or have lived experience of one of these surgeries, you might not conduct research on topics that are most important to those of us who do have them. This may be because either they aren't a priority for surgeons or surgeons didn't think of these topics or they're identified as important only by community members. Our survey covered a lot of topic areas that were not addressed previously in academic literature. Without giving you a massive laundry list, here are some highlights of topics that are either very rarely or never addressed in previous research. 
When I read this list, by the way, by surgery, I do specifically mean phalloplasty or metodioplasty. How people prepare for surgery and what is useful. How much people spent on surgery and where they traveled. Recovery experiences. Denial of healthcare services after surgery. Surgeon-patient relationships. Self-reported complication severity. Self-reported changes in dysphoria and euphoria due to surgery. Self-reported changes in masturbation and satisfaction. Genital self-image. Sex-related worries after surgery. Disclosing being trans or having undergone surgery to new sex partners. This is not a comprehensive list of all of the topics that were included in our survey, but some of these topics will be discussed in later episodes in more detail. All of these results and others will be shared in our community report and on our website via Snapstats, which are just graph or bar charts with a description of the finding. If you're interested, the full survey is available on our website for anyone to look at or to reuse questions in future research, as long as you cite us. The survey was 115 pages and took the average person about 45 minutes to complete. If you can imagine, it did cover a wide range of topics then. We decided on all the topics included in this survey collaboratively and by a majority vote. In fact, all major decisions about the project were made this way. So never was I just the one making decisions on behalf of the team. We made them together. Especially when planning a project, I think this is better because one person can't possibly know or think of everything that's important to include in this kind of project. Without this team, this research could not have been done so well. Our survey starts with some demographic questions and then moves into asking questions about experiences before surgery. The next set of questions asks about experiences around recovery, followed by quite a long section asking about experiences of life generally after surgery, including changes that may have happened as a result of having surgery. We collected responses online, mostly from Facebook and Reddit posts that were made by the Community Engagement Committee. At the end of the day, 215 people participated and completed our survey. A recruitment experience was unique because since we are community members who are generally actively involved in a lot of online spaces, we were able to share calls for participants in places where non-trans researchers or people without lived experience of fallow or meta might not be able to access. And because of that, I think we reached a lot of potential participants who either have not been asked or would have been missed with other types of recruitment strategies. So thank you to those who allowed us to post our calls for participants in Reddit and Facebook spaces. Um, we really appreciate the help and are so glad that so many people were willing to take our survey. As we go through the rest of the episodes, we'll be sharing results in the form of descriptive statistics, so percentages, frequencies, and the number of people who have certain types of experiences. In the community reports, you'll find some other types of statistics which will tell you more information or give you a bit of a different lens into our results. That's the short story of our research project. I'm happy to answer any questions over email, which you can find on our website. Next up, I'll be speaking to Logan, and we will talk a little bit about what phalloplasty is, what metodioplasty is, and go through some frequently asked questions that we hear from folks um, who are just starting out on their journey to learn about these surgeries.
before we get started, I just want to remind people who are listening that these interviews are being recorded over the internet and we're using Zoom and some other software to capture audio. There might be some distortions because we're recording over the internet and there might be some background noise because some of the interviews are taking place in people's homes. Throughout this podcast series, as I'm speaking, I'm only speaking about my personal opinion and anyone else I'm interviewing is sharing their personal opinion or thoughts and absolutely nothing that we're saying should be construed as medical advice in any way. So definitely, you know, listen to what we have to say today and take that into consideration, but um, don't assume that anything that anyone's saying is necessarily advice. In this episode and in the rest of the podcast we will be using anatomic language to refer to bodies and genitals specifically. So Logan, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm wondering if you would like to briefly introduce yourself, say how you're connected with the project or anything else that you'd like. Hi, Leo. Um, really happy to be here talking with you today. So I'm Logan Berrien. I'm a registered nurse, a board certified nurse case manager and the clinical director of the transgender program at the Bunky Clinic. And that is a phalloplasty program that consists of Dr. Babak Safa, Dr. Andrew Watt, Dr. Meng Chen, Dr. Rudy Buntik, Dr. Walter Lin. And we've been doing that for the past six years. And I got involved with the progress study as a community member. For everyone who's listening, can you just first give us a quick introduction to phalloplasty? So what is it? What does it involve? What are the options? Phalloplasty is using what we call a skin flap to create a penis that is in any sense that the patient wants analogous to a cisgender male. What I mean by that is that not every patient is going to want the same exact outcome. While everyone may be looking for a penis, they may not need it to perform in exactly the same way that the next person does. So there is some freedom in what a phalloplasty is and means to you as the person getting the procedure done. For the most part, what we see with a phalloplasty operation, you're going to have the design, creation, and harvest of that skin flap, the creation of the penis with or without what's called a neo-urethra. So that is creating a tube in a tube, meaning that we have rolled a portion of that flap into a new urethra that will extend from the base to the tip of the penis. That is usually connected to what we call a lengthened urethra, which is your natal urethra. Those are connected. A vaginectomy is often performed because that supports that urethral lengthening process and reduces complications. It includes a scrotoplasty, which is created from the outer labia and that is what most people are looking at when pursuing phalloplasty. 
when we started our program, um, which was one of the first in the United States, that was the standard phalloplasty that people could have. Insurance wasn't really willing to allow other types of configurations. But now, six years later, we see that there's a lot more flexibility. So if you don't want to have urethral lengthening or you don't want to have vaginectomy or you don't want to have scrotoplasty, all of those things are possible when pursuing phalloplasty today. And it sounded like when you were describing it at the beginning that there was sort of options depending on what people wanted for the functionality of their genitals. Is there anything that you can talk about that people may or may not pursue when it comes to like how their penis might work? I think similarly in the past, the assumption was everyone wants to have an erectile device or everyone wants to have urethral lengthening all the way to the tip. Not everyone wants that and not everyone finds that necessary. Certainly for sexual function, it is not necessary to have the erectile device, but it's also a perfectly good option. It does add on, you know, a little bit extra risk with an additional surgery. And anytime that you're bringing something from the outside into the inside environment, there's a risk for things like increased infection. There's additional healing time, things like that. But the erectile device overall, I think, yields outcomes for functionality that people really enjoy. There are also external options. Uh, There are devices like something called the elator, which people seem to kind of either love or hate. Uh, There are other options like using sleeves, using double condom method, using Coban, that all can create enough firmness for penetration and have a very satisfactory outcome for function. And then as far as, you know, urinary function, there are options for bringing the urethra to the base of the penis, bringing it to the tip of the penis, or just leaving it in the needle position in the perineum. I know it can be a little overwhelming if this is, if this is the first time you're hearing all of this. It's a lot of information. Feel free to go back and listen again. My next question is just, and probably this is a pretty frequently asked question, to be honest, is what is the difference between phalloplasty and metodioplasty? So there's a big difference in multiple ways between phalloplasty and metodioplasty. Metodioplasty is an outpatient procedure, and that is one of the biggest differences. With phalloplasty, you're usually in the hospital for about six days of inpatient care. With metodioplasty, you're in a surgery center for a few hours, and then you can go home afterwards. That's because it's not having any transplanted vascular tissue or anything that needs very close monitoring. The healing process as a result is much quicker and much easier. Metoideoplasty will use original clitoral tissue to create the new penis and that tissue is released from a ligament and then you can add in urethral lengthening or 
opt out of adding in urethral lengthening, including vaginectomy or not, and including scrotoplasty or not. Many people like doing metoidoplasty as kind of an intermediary stage between phalloplasty, and this can be very helpful for people, more so psychologically, in getting prepared for phalloplasty. There's not any real medical benefit to doing it as an additional stage. It doesn't reduce complications. What it does is kind of stretches them out. Instead of our phalloplasty, where we do what's called a single stage phalloplasty, where you're doing the phalloplasty itself, vaginectomy, urethral lengthening, scrotoplasty all together. If you do it in a staged version with a meta first, you can kind of go through some adverse effects that you might have, like if you had a fistula or something from that initial urethral lengthening, you're getting that kind of out of the way in that step. You're getting the opportunity to heal from things that people find difficult, like the vaginectomy kind of done before you go through more intensive procedure like a phalloplasty. It is definitely something to consider if that feels like a way forward that feels better for you, but it certainly isn't necessary by any means. As far as the types of metoidioplasty, there is just a release, which is just a clitoral release without anything else. That would be the least invasive option. There's a standard metoidioplasty, and then there are a couple of like proprietary methods. One is called the Centurion. I believe uh, Dr. Raphael in Texas originated that. And then a ring metoidioplasty. Marcy Bowers is someone who often is practicing that. I don't know a great deal about the details on those. So those would be something if someone was interested in, they should kind of look up on their own time. Definitely. There is a lot of research a person could do when they are preparing for either fallow or meta. There's so much to look into. There's just so much information that people feel like they're lacking or that they have trouble accessing. That leads into the next little segment of this session. So just to talk about some frequently asked questions that either you might get from patients or that we just might hear as members of the community. Are there different types of phalloplasty and what what does that really look like or mean? Like how should a patient choose which type? There are actually several different types of phalloplasty. The main difference with phalloplasties are whether it is a microsurgical procedure or not. And what that means is if there is a microsurgical procedure, it's using nerves and vascular transplant techniques where something that is more of a standard plastic surgery technique will not have the same nerve functionality. With a microsurgical procedure, nerves are being harvested and hooked up to other nerves to create the ability of the penis to be sensate. Ideally, this results in full sensation, but we can never promise that the nerve regrowth will be exactly what we want. So sometimes people will have 
full sensation. Sometimes they'll have partial sensation. Some people may not have sensation, but I would say that's a very rare outcome. This gold standard in phalloplasty, and what the gold standard means is that in medicine, that is the best way for you to perform a procedure or a specific medication or whatnot when compared to anything else with using evidence-based data. So we know that the gold standard is called radial forearm flap phalloplasty. That's a skin flap taken from the forearm. With that flap, the way that it became the gold standard is that it has the most robust blood supply. And the blood supply is imperative to everything. So the better the blood supply, the more oxygen you have reaching tissues, the better tissue oxygenation, the better everything is going to heal and perform. We also know that if you consider your hands, they have lots of nerve endings, they're very sensate, they need to feel things. When you're looking at that skin flap on your arm, as you're going towards your hands, you know that there are a lot of nerves and nerve endings, and we're going to be able to harvest, ideally, more nerves as a result in that flap. Those nerves are then connected to the clitoral nerve, and ideally, you know, within several months, you've had a lot of nerve pathway growth, and you'll have, hopefully, a fully sensate penis. The next option that is a microsurgical technique, and probably the second most popular option is called ALT, or anterior lateral thigh phalloplasty. It does not have the same kind of great outcomes for sensation also has a much higher risk of complications as far as urinary complications go the reason for that is that the blood supply is not as robust and with that less robust blood supply we can see issues in healing so for example if you don't have consistent excellent blood flow to all areas as you're healing that neo-urethra, you might see that the area with less blood flow, less oxygen, will result in something like a fistula, for example. And there's more chance for that to happen with the ALT. Many people like it because the scar is completely not visible. It's going to be hidden by your pants, by your underwear. And that's a totally valid choice for many people. It just needs to be looked at comparatively. Are you willing to run the risk of having more chance of complications in order to not have the scar? Or would you rather have the scar and less chance of complications? Regardless, this is a very complex surgery and complications happen and they happen whether you have RFF or ALT for many people. So with anything, it's important to do your research and look at what outcomes are really necessary and best for you and to pick from there. Non-microsurgical options, there's something called an MLD flap, which is taken from the latissimus muscle in the back. That is a, another very old style 
about 50, 60 years old of skin flap. They're at the beginning of the kind of thalloplasty renaissance that we had about 10 years ago in the United States when our program first, first started before it really got going. And when the Crane Center program had first gotten started, there was kind of a really exciting and experimental time where people were trying a bit of everything. And what we found was that the outcomes from MLD were not ideal for most people. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to reduce. And it produces a very large size penis that may not work very well with options for erectile devices. The weight can impact the functionality of the urethra and the size can just cause a post-op dysphoria for people. And since we're trying to eliminate or greatly reduce dysphoria, it's in our opinion that it's best to avoid procedures that can end up increasing it. That's something that we definitely try to avoid, but there are surgeons that do perform that surgery and it can be something that can meet needs for people so it shouldn't be discounted outright. The next type of phalloplasty that I want to talk about is the abdominal phalloplasty, also known as a suprapubic phalloplasty or an ab flap. And this is an older technology that can still be used to great results today. The outcomes can be really satisfying for people who are not wanting to have a visible scar like with RFF and who may have different needs as far as urethroplasty and even with a erectile device. There are options with certain surgeons where you can do a modified RFF urethroplasty, which is added in at a later date to the ab flap. That is something that if the patient was interested in, um, I would very much encourage them to do their research, make sure that that's something that they want to take risks with. It is a riskier procedure. In some studies, the failure rate of the urethra is very high. But I think that with anything, as we have more people practicing and more opportunity to do these operations, as the numbers get higher, the expertise also gets higher and the outcomes become better. And that's across the board with anything. With Ab flap, some of the benefits are that the donor site is not visible. As I said, it's in the lower abdomen. There's no secondary skin graft required, and that's really great. There's a much shorter operative time, a shorter recovery, and in the initial stage, there is no risk of having urethral complications. If you choose to do that delayed RFF urethroplasty, that is a whole different story, of course. There are surgeons who are also looking at ways to connect nerves for ab flap. In a standard ab flap surgery, there is no nerve connection. When the radial artery urethroplasty is performed, they also harvest nerve along with the flap. And that nerve that's feeding sensation into the neo-urethra can also cause erogenous sensation into the tip of the penis. 
no guarantee that that's what's going to happen, but it's definitely something that has possibility and probability. So it is something to discuss with your surgeon if you are interested in ab flap and if you're interested in exploring what options you have for sensation and for urethroplasty. As a patient, always look into what evidence-based research shows versus what someone who is selling you a product, because in the end, that is what this is. It's a, a surgeon selling you on the procedure that you want to have. Just because something exists doesn't mean that it's necessarily the best option. So if someone tells you that they have the next best thing and it's going to be better than RFF, do your research and make sure that's accurate. On the topic of different types of phalloplasty and different types of metodioplasty, one of the things that I hear a lot in a lot of community spaces is what's better, phalloplasty or metodioplasty? And I mean, I certainly have my own opinions about that, which equate to it depends on what you want and what your goals are. And maybe you'll have a similar opinion, but is that a question you hear a lot? And if so, like, how do you answer it? That is a question that I hear a lot, and I have to say the answer is definitely it's up to you and what your needs are and what kind of outcomes you're looking for for yourself and your goals. Related to choosing whether or not phalloplasty or metodioplasty is right for you and choosing what's best for your body based on your goals, a lot of people seem to want to know exactly what their chance of various complications or complication rates might be based on the procedure that they choose. Do prospective patients or people that you interact with in the community ask a lot about what their complication rates will be and what do you tell them? I get that question all the time and I think that the surgeons get that question all the time as well. For our practice specifically, we have the lowest complication rates for RFF in the field. And that is because of Dr. Chen's proprietary methods for urethroplasty. And those are specific to RFF because of that blood supply issue that I mentioned. So we have about a 20% complication rate and that's really great. However, that's still 20% chance that you're going to have some kind of urethral complication that can look like anything from small fistulas, which are openings to the outside of the body from the inside. So in this case, it would be from the urethra to the outside, making an additional exit for urine. And sometimes those can heal on their own, and sometimes they need surgical intervention. Either way, we would consider it a complication. There are other common complications that arise with urethroplasty, things called strictures, which is like a scar tissue issue, narrowing of the urethra usually happens in specific areas. So if we look at RFF overall and for all practices worldwide, you have a safer bet that you will have less chance of complication with that gold standard operation, there is still going to be a chance for complication regardless.
as we age, we are always at risk for more difficulties in healing. Had really young 18-year-old guys in their absolute prime physical condition who have had really significant complications. And so there's no way to say that, well, my body type is like this, or I have this issue, or I'm in perfect shape, I'm going to be fine. Like there's no perfect predictor to say, yes, you will have, or no, you will not have complications. It just is something when you have a huge operation this that is affecting multiple body systems, has multiple very large surgical wounds to recover from at the same time, there is always going to be a great chance that something can arise as a complication. So you need to be psychologically ready for how you're going to deal with that if that happens. One of, to me, the most comforting things is that I have never seen anyone at five years post-op who is still living with the same complications that they started with when they were immediately post-op or even at two years for, I would say, 90% of people still experiencing complications. So it's something that often happens early on in the healing process, you know, within like the first two months and usually by the first year to two years, those things have been addressed. When we are going to partake in something that's this big, we just need to be ready for everything that can come our way and kind of have a plan in place for how we're going to deal with those things if they are to arise. In addition to those other frequently asked questions, do people ask about electrolysis or laser hair removal? Like how long they should have it, how long it takes to remove all of the hair, anything like that? I will tell you that hair removal is always required. It doesn't matter if you're having urethroplasty or not, especially for younger people, single people, anyone who is in the dating pool or just really anyone. What we have seen is that when people do not prepare adequately with hair removal, post-op dysphoria from having a hair-covered penis, trying to be in the dating arena, and not having a quote-unquote normalized appearance of your genitals can make a difference in your psychological outcomes. And so even if a surgeon were to tell you that you don't need to worry about that, I would say that is not up to them, that is up to you. Completing hair removal in advance of phalloplasty is much preferred to completing it after. Because even for people who don't have sensation or have had very little sensation come back, it's still likely that you can experience hypersensitivity to things like hair removal when you are post-op. So always the best thing to do, no matter the donor site, is to get that full donor site completely prepared and ready to go. In my experience, I have found that a combination of laser and electrolysis works best. That can look like clearing with laser initially, usually about four to five sessions, taking a two-month break, and then starting electrolysis. 
or if you find a provider who offers both modalities, oftentimes they can kind of use them interchangeably in the way that they feel is best that they have the most experience with. However, if only one method is offered to you and that's the only thing your insurance will cover or the only thing available in your area, doing just one or the other is fine. Also, certain hair types work better with only electrolysis. So looking into what all of your options are and making sure that you take enough time to fully complete the entire process is the best way forward to preparing for phalloplasty and reducing possible complications. If anyone has follow-up questions regarding the interview or questions about phalloplasty at TBC, you can reach me at logan at bunky.org, logan at b-u-n-c-k-e dot org. Amazing. Thank you so much, Logan. I really can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the podcast today to answer my questions and hopefully for the listeners, some of the questions that you had were answered today too. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 